Our sermon text this morning is from the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. These are the words of God. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. In the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us to it. We ask that you would speak to us through uh, these last words from Malachi. Impress them upon us. We pray this in Jesus' name and amen. What is the last word of the Old Testament? What is the last thing that God says to his people before 400 plus years of prophetic silence? The answer is the text I just read to you, Malachi 4, 6. This is how the Old Testament ends. And you can see that it ends with the word curse. Curse. How is that for an ending? It began with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it ends with a threat that God will come and smite that same earth with a curse. This is God's last word before a long silence. In Hebrew, this word curse is harem. And it is an important term that refers to something that is devoted or dedicated completely to God. For example, we see in Leviticus 27 that in the year of Jubilee, a field could be harem. And that meant that it was holy and could therefore belong to the priest who was also holy. God says to the priests in Numbers 18.14, Every devoted thing, harem, in Israel shall be yours. But more frequently what we see is that harem refers to things that are utterly destroyed totally burned up, completely consumed by fire. So, for example, the Amalekites were harem. That meant take no prisoners when you go to war with them. Kill everybody. There were special laws in Deuteronomy 20 that distinguished between fighting against nations that were harem and nations that were not. When Samuel says to King Saul, God has more delight in obedience than sacrifice, it was because Saul had not obeyed these laws of warfare. He had not treated as harem what God commanded to be destroyed. We read in Joshua 6 that the entire city of Jericho was harem. And so when Achan took that gold and that silver and that beautiful Babylonian garment and buried it under his tent, what happened to him? The harem curse that fell upon Jericho fell upon him as well. Achan was stoned and burned with fire, he and all his household. 
So you can think of harem as something that God has specially claimed for himself. God says, that's mine. And if that thing is holy, it will survive. It can belong to the priests. They can redeem it. But if that thing or person or city or nation is unholy, then they are like uh, an ice cube flying into the sun. They're not going to make it. This is the threat that God gives to his people before 400 years of silence. The day of the Lord is coming. It's burning like an oven. And the condition of the curse is that if the hearts of the fathers are not turned to the children, and if the hearts of children are not turned to their fathers, God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to strike that earth with harem, a curse. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at and answer three questions. Three questions that arise from these final words in the Old Testament. And these three questions are these. Number one, what does the father-child relationship have to do with whether God blesses or curses a land? How are those two things related? Second, how does the ministry of John the Baptist, who comes in the spirit of Elijah, fulfill this prophecy? And then third, how does the coming of Christ transform the relationship between fathers and children? That's where we're going. So question number one, what does the relationship between fathers and children have to do with whether God blesses or curses the land? There are a few ways of answering this, but uh, to answer uh, this question from Malachi, we should look at uh, the context in which he ministered. We're not told exactly when Malachi prophesied, but we can infer from the contents of the book that it was probably after the events of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, And we know this because Malachi references uh, the sacrificial worship at the temple. And if you know uh, the history of Israel, uh, Babylon came and destroyed Solomon's temple. They were taken off into exile for 70 years. But then Cyrus, God's anointed, uh, declares a great commission, go rebuild uh, the city, rebuild the temple. And so they do that. And Ezra and Nehemiah describes this uh, rebuilding project. And uh, there are some uh, adversity, there are some setbacks, but eventually uh, they finish the project. And so if Malachi is addressing uh, this uh, group of people, which uh, most people uh, agree that he is, this would place him roughly about 480 years before Christ. And so think that's about how long uh, the prophetic silence is going to be. Amos had earlier prophesied of a famine that would come upon the land, and this is going to be a long famine. Now, uh, if you were to look at Ezra and Nehemiah and uh, Haggai and Zechariah who prophesied uh, during that time, you would see that the sins that the Jews were committing are essentially the same sins that Malachi uh, prophesies against in his book. Uh, The primary ones being the following. Uh, Intermarriage with unbelievers, marrying foreign women, uh, unlawful divorces, breaking the Sabbath, all kinds of financial and economic corruption, uh, priests offering lame sacrifices, polluted bread, uh, the people not tithing, etc. And uh, if you look at Malachi, which is uh, arranged as a dialogue between God and his people, and if you were to look at all the questions that God puts on uh, the Jews' mouth, uh, they essentially are playing the victim. 
they're blaming God. They're saying, uh, you love us, God? How have you loved us? Right? They're, they're blaming their own misfortune upon God. So they're living in unbelief and they're blaming God. So this is what Malachi addresses in the first three chapters of, of the book. And the thing that all of these sins have in common is that they, uh, they're the sins that religious people commit. They are sins that, in a sense, only Jews can commit because only Jews had a special covenant with God. Of course, we know that all sin is ultimately religious, but these are the specific and unique sins of apostasy, of covenant breaking, and of violating a a specific oath they swore back in Nehemiah chapters 9 and 10. This is why Malachi says in verse 4, Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and the judgments. So uh, they're not just murdering uh, each other. This isn't violation against uh, just the natural law or the moral law. These are violations against the statutes and judgments of the Mosaic law. Now, uh, if you read uh, Nehemiah 10, you'll see that uh, they, they swore an oath to God not to commit almost this exact list of sins. I'll read to you just a brief sampling of that section. It says this. Now the rest of the people joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his ordinances and his statutes. All right, and then here they are. Number one, we would not give our daughters as wives to the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. If the people of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we would forego the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. And we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our dough, our offerings, the fruit from all kinds of trees, the new wine and oil to the priests, to the storerooms of the house of our God, and to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites. And we will not neglect the house of our God. So this is what they voluntarily covenant swear to do. And you might be wondering, uh, why did they do this? Right? They should know their own history that they have a habit of uh, not keeping the covenant. Right? While Moses is on the mountain, they're dancing naked around a golden calf. Right? Uh, this is, you can already see, this is not going to go well. So why do this? Why enter into this oath? Well, uh, aside from the fact that this is uh, the right thing to do because this is the one true religion, if you were to read Deuteronomy 28 or Leviticus 26, which, are, which lays out kind of the covenant blessings and covenant curses, you'd see that when you enter into a covenant with God, you immediately gain access to his uh, special favor. Immediately. Yes, there are curses if you disobey, but there are a lot of blessings if you are obedient. For example, God promises to give you peace from war. And prosperity, wouldn't you like that? He promises to make you the head and not the tail. Who wants to be the tail? He promises to give you the rain in its season to bless your crops and your livestock. He promises to give you physical health. No more allergies, no more cancer, no more disease. Wouldn't you like that? He promises to give you abundance, to remove plague, to remove disease from the land. 
It says that no woman would be barren. There would be no miscarriages or children dying in infancy. These are the promised blessings on a nation that keeps covenant with God. And you can think uh, God doesn't work exactly the same way today, but analogously so. And uh, there's a lot of uh, disease, plague, uh, women who are barren, women who have miscarriages today, which should tell us something. We are not in a blessed covenant relationship with God, uh, these United States of America. Right? And this was the case for the Jews at this time. And so to return to our question, how does the relationship between fathers and children affect whether God blesses or curses the land? Uh, well, the answer is, That when fathers and children keep covenant with God, the land is blessed. Think about the the fifth commandment. Think about what Paul says about it in the New Testament. Children, obey your parents. Honor them. This is the first commandment that comes with what? A promise, a, a blessing. Right. So somehow embedded in this relationship between parents and children, fathers and children, God promises to either bless or curse a land. In a certain sense, you can just look at the relationship between a father and his children, and that tells you kind of the spiritual state of the nation. That's a litmus test for what is going on in the nation. And if you look at all of the sins that Malachi addresses, you can trace them back to this breakdown between the father-child relationship. Children either imitating the sins of their father Or a father setting a sinful example for their children. You think, uh, how many school shootings are perpetrated by young men who have uh, wonderful, loving relationships with godly fathers? Not many. It doesn't happen. How many uh, girls are wanting to be boys and boys wanting to be girls and mutilate their bodies who also have uh, loving, kind, godly fathers in their lives? Not many. It it doesn't happen. Even secular research shows this, right? You see, anytime there is a shooting, everyone's trying, you know, they want to ban the guns or something. Uh, But but even some secular researchers are saying, you know, actually, there is another variable here. The role of a father and whether that person had a father in their life. And what was that relationship like? Fathers play the most significant role in whether the children take on vice or virtue, whether they keep or abandon the faith. This is just the way that God made the world. When God proclaimed his name on Mount Sinai at the original giving of the covenant, uh, he identifies himself this way. It says this in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God passes on the father's iniquity to the children. And if you think about where our nation is now, I mean, there was a generational handoff that got us here. We are reaping what we 
have sown. God is not mocked. Fathers did not confess their sins. Fathers committed iniquity. And God passed it on to the next generation. So you can see why Malachi 4.6 is God's last word to his people. Because a long time is going to go by. Generations are going to go by. 480 some years are going to go by until the Messiah comes. And if there is a breakdown in the handing off of the faith, if there is uh, the visiting of iniquity for generations upon generations, when the day of the Lord comes, when the Messiah comes, they are going to be caught unawares. They're going to be in the category of wicked that get turned into ash. So this is why God gives them this threat and warning and promise. The promise is, Malachi 4, 2-3, this. Unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in His wings. Right? The Son is coming. If you're wicked, it's going to burn you. But if you're righteous, it's going to bring healing to you. And ye shall go forth, and you're going to grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked. They're going to be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this saith the Lord of hosts. So judgment is coming. You cannot stop it. It's coming. And this means rewards or blessings for the righteous and punishments and curses for the wicked. So which side are you going to be on? Fathers, are you keeping covenant? Sons and daughters, are you keeping covenant? Or is there unrepented sin? Is there iniquity in your life? Because God's blessing or curse on the nation depends upon this. You you think back to that uh, incident with Achan that I alluded to, which is uh, a story that is very un-American, right? Americans are individuals. We want to be judged by the content of our individual character and not on what anyone in our family or nation does. But remember what happens in that story? Joshua takes them off into battle and they don't win. They lose because one guy stole some of the booty from Jericho and hid it under his tent. And what's even more uncomfortable for us is that his sons and his daughters are put to death with him. We don't like that. But this is how God works. This is how covenant responsibility works. One person's sin in the church actually affects the rest of the, what does Paul call us? A body. Right? We are connected whether we want to be or not. God reckons us this way. So fathers, children, what is that relationship like? This brings us to question number two. How does the ministry of John the Baptist fulfill this prophecy? This one who comes in the spirit of Elijah. Uh, To answer this, we got to go to uh, the New Testament, of course. And we read in Luke 1 that John's parents were Zechariah and Elizabeth. And it says in verse 6 that they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Right? So you need to have a category for this. There are righteous Jews who are considered blameless under the law. They have kept that covenant Right? They're in a, a lineage of faith. Father and mother keeping covenant with God. And yet God says, 
Uh, It says in verse 7, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in years. Now, a a few verses later on, an angel is going to appear to Zecharias in the temple and tell him that his son is to be named John and that he is going to fulfill Malachi 4.6. And so here we get an actual uh, angelic explanation, an angelic sermon on Malachi 4.6. So let me just read Luke 1. 13 to 17 and see what this angel has to say. He says, Do not be afraid, Zecharias, for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be strong in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then here's the quotation. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So this is what John's ministry is going to look like. He's going to be filled from the womb with the spirit. He's going to turn the hearts of fathers to the children. He's going to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. He's going to do all of these things for one purpose, to prepare them for the coming of the Lord. So that is that is the what of what John is going to do. That's what he's going to do. But uh, I want to know how he does this. How are the hearts of fathers to turn to the children and children to the fathers? This is a relevant question for us in our nation today that is so fractured. How does John turn and reconcile parents and children? We are given a portrait of John's ministry in all four Gospels. And if you were to survey and kind of summarize, condense down what his ministry was like, he essentially did two things. John preached repentance and John baptized with water. He also ate locusts, but not not as relevant to this to this piece. I don't don't think. Uh, But he preached repentance and he baptized with water. He preached the necessity of repentance and confession of sin. And then he baptized people as a sign of cleansing from those sins. Now, a lot of people can preach. God had sent preachers in the past. But in Luke three, we get a sense for what John's preaching was like. It says, uh, then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You can imagine them saying, um, Malachi did, <laughs> right? Aren't they doing what they're supposed to do? R- fleeing from, from the wrath? But John goes on. He says, uh, therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. So notice what the the unique sin that Luke draws our attention to here that John is preaching against. It's actually boasting about who their father is. They're claiming lineage to Father Abraham. Father Abraham. That's who they're paying lip service to. But John says, I'm not seeing the family resemblance. You claim to be sons of Abraham. But you are actually sons of the serpent. You are a brood of vipers. Your heart is not turned to Father Abraham. It's turned to the father, the devil. The people respond to this and they say, well, what shall we do then? John says in verse 11, 
He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. And it goes on in verse 18, With many other exhortations he preached to the people. So think about what John is doing here. He, he has a, a specific word for you if you are a tax collector. <laughs> he has a specific word for you if you are a, a soldier in the army. And John is saying that if this soldier would stop falsely accusing, if he would be content with his wages, if the tax collector would stop ripping people off, if you would be generous and actually give uh, your surplus clothes and food to the person who's going to starve and go cold, that that would be what actually turns your heart to your father or to your children. Because if you are doing justice and mercy when you are away at your job, right? how much more should you be showing generosity and love and providing for those who are your own flesh and blood, to those in your own home? So John has a specific exhortation to these first century Jews, and uh, we should ask ourselves, what would his exhortation be to me? Right? What is the sin, not of uh, the people in Washington, that apostate state, right? What? Well, what is his exhortation to me as a construction worker, as a computer programmer, as a stay-at-home mom, whatever you are, right? What is the thing that is going to turn your heart to your father and turn uh, your heart as a child to your father? This is the first step in bringing uh, parents and children into fellowship. We must honestly confess our sins, And not just that, we have to bear fruits that keep with that repentance. It's not enough to just have family meeting, confess your sins, and then go back to how it was before. There has to be follow-through. There has to be fruit-bearing that is keeping with that repentance. In in Moscow, a lot of my work, most of my work, is with uh, young men, young college-age men, freshmen coming in. And I have kind of this inventory of questions that I go through with with all of them. So I get into their life. I ask them, do you have a budget? I ask them, how much sleep do you get? Uh, But I spend a lot of time asking about their relationships, specifically the relationships with their father, with their siblings, if they have any. I ask them, is there anybody in your life that you are out of fellowship with? Right? Anybody at all? And they, they think and... Sometimes they say no, but then they come back a week later and, and we're having another conversation. It turns out, okay, there's actually so, uh, some relationships that are out of fellowship. But it's amazing to me uh, meeting all of these young, young men each year and seeing just the impact and the difference that a healthy relationship with their father has on them. And often I am uh, meeting with the sons of men that I know in the church, and I can, I can see the resemblance. At the same time, it's also kind of scary as a dad, right? So I have two little boys, and I think about who they're going to be talking to in uh, 20 years or so or less, uh, and what they're going to say about their relationship with me, right? 
The Son reveals the Father. Our sons reveal us. Our daughters reveal something about us. Whether we like it or not, we are all marked by our fathers. For good or for ill, and usually some mixture of both. Of course, we are all marked by Adam and his sin. But it is one of the most glorious things in the world when you see the relationship between fathers and children healed. And that is what John is aiming at. That is what Malachi is prophesying. That John is going to come and reconcile fathers and children to one another. So much of the enmity and breaches of fellowship come from us not keeping short accounts. From fathers who never apologize or seek forgiveness from their children. Who provoke them to wrath or are harsh and overbearing. And in the other direction from children who never, ever confess the ways they have been ungrateful, disrespectful, and disobedient to their parents. We think that just because their sin against us was worst, or they sinned against us first, that we are somehow excused from needing to confess our sins to them. But that is not the Christian doctrine of repentance. We heard it earlier in our confession. 1 John 1.8 says that if we, have, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Right? You are lying to yourself if you say, I have no sin. John says the truth is not in you. But if we confess our sins, the Father is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the verse before this says that if we walk in the light as He is in the light... We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. The light is the only place we can have fellowship. And so John the Baptist is sent to these Jews to call them into the light. Into the light of the Son of Righteousness. That the hearts of children would be turned to their fathers. This brings us to our third and final question. How does Christ transform this relationship between fathers and children. So remember, all of John's preaching and baptizing and uh, reconciling fathers and children is a preparation. Because Jesus is going to come along and say uh, even more provocative and radical things than John did. So uh, John is bringing everyone together. And then Jesus comes along and he says things like this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple, Luke 14, 26. Or Luke 8. Then his mother, Mary, and his brothers came to him and could not approach him because of the crowds. Jesus is teaching. It's crowded. His natural family's outside. And Jesus answers them and says, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. That's who Jesus' family is. How did that make Mary feel, you wonder? Or Luke 12, 51 and 53. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you not. Not at all, but rather division. 
Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother. So you think, uh, why is Jesus messing with what John just did? John is the great reconciler, and then Jesus comes along as the great divider. Jesus is saying, whatever love, whatever loyalty, whatever affection that you as a father have for your children, or you as children, whatever affection, reliance upon love for your father that you have, Jesus comes along and says, you have to give pride of place to me. You have to hate them. You have to hate them in comparison to how much you love me. So John brings us back together. He reconciles fathers and children so that Jesus has a place from which to say now that love, that goodness, that fellowship. I have to be number one. How can he say this? No one spoke like this before Jesus. Who would say this? Who has the gall to say this? Well, Jesus can say this because he is the Lord of the covenant, right? Jesus is the one who was revealed on Sinai when God spoke his name. That's the same Lord. Jesus is the one who baptizes every single one of your earthly relationships in fire. Meaning that the only way that you can have real and lasting fellowship in your family, in your earthly, temporal, natural relationships, is by first dying to them, by first placing them upon the altar, by setting them at Jesus' feet. Only then can you really have the possibility of eternal fellowship. So this is what Jesus does. He comes to burn up everything, not to just completely destroy it, but to actually resurrect it, to bring it back in a new way. Uh, We think that uh, we we know that uh, there is not a giving of marriage in heaven. We we don't quite know what that relationship is going to look like. But whatever it looks like, we know that it's going to be a even deeper intimacy than the relationship between a husband and his wife with whom he is one flesh. The oneness in marriage is transcended somehow in the age to come. We don't know how that works, but we know that it is because Jesus tells us. Christ transforms every relationship. And so the progression that Malachi sets in motion is that John is going to come and he's going to bring us to Jesus. And then Jesus is going to come and who is he going to bring us to? He's going to bring us to his father. He's going to bring us to the father's house. This is what all of the preparation is for, the revelation of who God is as father, as son, as Holy Spirit. Uh, Think about the Psalms, which we sing and, and we pray as a church. The way that we typically address God in the Psalms is with what title? It's typically Lord. Right? Lord, Lord God, O oh Lord. Uh, but when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he says, uh, pray our Father. Right? So there is a, a greater revelation of who God is that Jesus reveals. The Son reveals the Father. The perfect Son reveals to us what sonship looks like. 
He reveals to us the perfect fatherhood of God. Jesus is the eternally begotten Son upon whom the love of the Father in the form of the Holy Spirit descends. And the reason that Jesus calls us to die and to follow him, to hate mother and father compared to how much we love him, is so that he can bring us to the father's house. So that he can bind up and heal your father's wounds. So that he can give you the father's comfort. What does Jesus say to his disciples before he goes to the cross? Peace I leave with you. Not peace like the world gives. There's a form of worldly peace. But I give you a deeper peace, a peace that comes from the Father, a peace that surpasses your own understanding. Don't you want that? Jesus comes to forgive you of all of the ways that you have been a rebellious child or a wicked father. And he comes to give you the possibility of eternal fellowship with him and with your natural family if they also will follow Christ. And so Jesus says to his disciples that if you have seen me, you have seen the father. If God is your father and you are his adopted son, then the words he declares at Jesus baptism are true for you in him. Namely, that you are my beloved son and in you I am well pleased. These are the father's words to you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the father is pleased with you in Jesus Christ? Do you know the love of the Father? And has your heart been turned to Him? It says in Psalm 103, 11 to 14, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God knows you. He knows your frame. He knows that you are just some dust from the ground that he breathed life into. And he does not ask from you more than you can give. And what he asks for is everything. That if you will hate your life and follow him, he will lead you home. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. This is what a father does, right? There will be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things will have passed away. Revelation 21, 4. And so the Old Testament ends with a curse. But the New Testament, it ends with a blessing. With this blessing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And amen. And amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that we can call you Father. We thank you for sending Christ to be the perfect son, to uh, die on our behalf for all of our uh, covenant breaking. God, we ask that you would make us as fathers a accurate representation of you who are Father. Make us to be like you. Communicate through us your good pleasure to our children. Give us wisdom with how to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Grant us to plead with them as Solomon does in Proverbs saying, Give me your heart, my son. Incline your ear to your mother's teaching. 
God, help us as parents to raise godly offspring, for this is what you seek. And God, help us as children, as young children and as grown children, all of us who have some father somewhere, help us to honor them in the way that you command, whether that means taking care of them in old age or submitting to their authority in the home when we are young. Make us as children to be a revelation and an image of Jesus, who is the perfect and obedient son. God, we ask all of this in your name and amen.